You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Given the burdens borne by gay and lesbian people, it's a wonder any of us survived to tell the tale. And I find it hard to believe that anyone who has seriously stopped long enough to contemplate such an existence would continue to want to deprive gay and lesbian people of the respect, companionship, and integrity we deserve. At its most basic, a religious commitment to do unto others as you would have them do unto you suggests that our views toward homosexuality and same-gender marriage have to change. Still, as a straight person, you might say, this just isn't my fight. No, it isn't, unless you care about the kind of society we have, unless you want the society of which you are a part to be a just one, unless you believe that a free society, not to mention a godly religion, should fight injustice wherever it is found, unless your religion tells you, as our entire Judeo-Christian heritage does, that any society will be judged by the way it treats its most vulnerable. Unless you care about children. Unless fairness matters to you. Unless violence against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people concerns you. Unless liberty and justice for all is something you believe applies to all our citizens. Gene Robinson completed his Master of Divinity degree in 1973 at the General Theological Seminary in New York and was ordained deacon and then priest, serving as a curate at Christ Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. He was elected bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New Hampshire in 2003, making him the first openly gay bishop in the church. His new book is God Believes in Love, a straight talk about gay marriage. Thank you for joining me, Bishop. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. This book is so interesting because when we look at the Episcopal Church, it's the result of a schism. And this book is, in a sense, the fulcrum for a schism and for a change in the church. And I think, in many ways, the equivalent of the 89 theses that Martin Luther nailed up to the door so long ago. This is a, a book that is at the center point of an epic change in the church and society. You know, not only has it been a a dramatic change for us, but it's, it's come in a relatively short period of time. In 2003, I think my election and consecration became a a kind of focal point for a difference that was beginning to occur that goes all the way back to our beginning to ordain women in 1976. And there were a number of people who seemed to be resisting the church becoming a place that, that really responded to the, the culture in a positive way. And then with my consecration, I think it was just the final straw that broke the camel's back. And indeed, uh, it's been a tough period. Although I must say, if you just read the headlines in the newspapers, you would think this was, was in fact a full-blown schism, you know, 50% of the church leaving or something. And in in point of fact, uh, even those who have left only claim about 100,000 people, and that's out of a denomination of over 2 million. Uh, 
So, you know, we regret losing those people, and they're certainly welcome to come back anytime they want. But the fact of the matter is 95% of the Episcopal Church stayed and really embraced these changes that we're making. And even, even those people who are not exactly sure that this was the time or the issue over which to be moving, uh, they did not see it as any kind of reason to leave. It was not a, a communion breaker, if you will. So it's a little bit like the schism party that nobody came to, or at least only a few people came to. You know, I'd like you to talk about creating a literary document, a, a written piece of literature that reflects this cultural change and crystallizes it and summarizes it and says, these are the 10 decisions you're faced with. And that's an interesting decision for you to make. Yeah, I, I was a little bit daunted by, by the task, except that, you know, I have talked with countless people about their concerns about embracing gay marriage, becoming advocates for marriage equality. And these questions that form the shape of the book are questions that I really have known now for a number of years because they're the questions that people ask of me. You know, doesn't gay marriage undermine marriage? Doesn't this change the definition of marriage? What does the Bible say about that? What would Jesus do? Don't children belong with a mother and a father? Those kinds of questions that honestly come up everywhere across the country, every region of the country, People are wrestling with these. And largely, I think, they come from people who would like to get there, right? I mean, they're, in their hearts, they've come to know some gay and lesbian people in their lives. And they know that all the bad things they've been told about gay people just aren't true of these people that they know. On the other hand, this seems to them like such a major change that they can't quite see their way through it. So... When I sat down to write this book, I imagined having a conversation with one of them. And as they raised these questions, then I, in a very conversational style, I just try to answer them as if that person is sitting in front of me. And I, I, I hope that's how the book comes across, as just a couple of people sitting and talking about this issue that's facing all of us. You know, what interested me as I read this book and went through the questions and the answers was how much of this is about looking at the Bible and the church as a, as a living document? And we're having the same conversation in the nation, too, about the Constitution. Is it graven in stone to mean just what they wrote 200 years ago? And how do we interpret those words? Or do we reinterpret those words to go with the world we're living in? And I thought that that was a kind of interesting notion, the importance of the flexibility of the language. I, I think that is a, a terrific analogy, and I, I had not thought of it that way, but, but you're absolutely right. I think conservative Christianity in this country has, has viewed Scripture as this chiseled-in-stone set of words and the traditional understanding of those words as being immutable and, and, and not flexible at all. However, I, I think that Scripture was meant to be a living document. And that, well, yeah, so here's a, here's a really important piece of Scripture for me. St. John's Gospel is mostly 
the dialogue that uh, takes place at the Last Supper. And so Jesus is having his last words with his disciples. And he says this really remarkable thing. He says, there is much that I would teach you, but you cannot bear it right now. So I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. Now I take that to mean, you know, he's saying, you know, for a bunch of rough, uneducated fishermen, you haven't done too badly. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of proud of you. However, don't think for a minute that God is done with you or will be done with the people who follow you because there is so much more that I would teach you, but you, you just can't bear it all at one time. And so I will send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. Now, I take that to mean that we are meant to encounter the living God in every generation and that God still has things to teach us. You know, I would point to the fact that, uh, you know, for how many centuries did we use Scripture to justify slavery? And now we, we think of that in horror, that, that we could have used uh, a, a holy text to, to justify the enslavement of human beings. There are people who still use Scripture to denigrate and subjugate women. And now I think we're asking the question, could we have been wrong about gay and lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people? Could it be the Holy Spirit that is leading us into a new truth about this group of people um, that we have generally looked down upon? And, uh, you know, occasionally people will say, oh my gosh, when is this all going to be over? And my response is, well, when we get a leg up on this one, God will point out someone else that we haven't noticed all these years or that we've been treating unfairly. And so I, I expect this um, Holy Spirit leading us into all truth uh, to go on to the end of time. You know, it's so interesting that the way you describe the Bible as being uh, made, it's built into self-update, essentially, that we're supposed to update it, supposed to interpret it with each generation. And I also think that was so interesting to me uh, when you were talking, using the analogy uh, of uh, the support of slavery, um, how important in this book metaphor and analogy are for you as a writer. There are powerful devices in your hands, and you use them carefully, you use them well. Uh, they're very clean and crisp and un easy to understand. That conversational style serves you well. Talk about creating these analogies and finding them and using them, laying them out in the book. You know, I think the, the issues that we're dealing with in the book around homosexuality, gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, and our relationships can be somewhat explosive, and it feels so very new and different. And we, and we know passions around this issue are fairly white hot uh, amongst some. And so I, I think the use of analogy is more in the service of saying, you know, really, take a deep breath calm down. We've done this before. I, I will say that, you know, the church has been wrong before, and it's wrong again. And people are somewhat horrified. But then when you use an analogy like slavery, you think, oh, that's right. That's exactly right. It was not only religious people arguing for slavery. It was also uh, religious people arguing for abolition. And these kinds of debates about how 
faith is to be applied to current culture have taken place before. And, and we're still here. You know, it, it didn't kill us. And we survived it. The church survived it. And we need not be fearful of it. I think fear is at the center of the objections to the full inclusion of LGBT people. And so I, I think the use of analogy to, to remind people that this isn't the first time we've done this. This is not going to kill us. And let's just keep talking because we can get through this and we can, we can actually make progress. And so um, if, if, people, if one of those analogies works to lower someone's anxiety about this discussion, then the discussion is really much more apt to go somewhere. This book starts out with a, a capsule history of your life, and it's a bit confessional. And I, I really like the kind of low-key uh, autobiography you give. I think it ushers us into your voice and your world and your experience and gives us a sense of the man who's going to be talking to us. So I'd like you to talk about a little bit about your life and because you sensed from the very beginning that you were different and that made things difficult for you. So talk about that and how writing that again and did you live it again as you wrote it and how that informed what follows? Well, I, I think there's nothing more important to understanding anyone than, than hearing their story. And at the end of the day, it's really the only story we've got to share, isn't it? I mean, who you are, how you came to be who you are, is, is really a, uh, actually a religious story, in my thinking, because the religious questions are, who am I, why am I here, uh, what am I here for, and how will I... How will I shape my life so that it'll make a difference? And so, yeah, I grew up really poor. I didn't live in a house with running water until I was 10. My parents were deeply religious in the Disciples of Christ faith, as was I. I've never known what it's like not to be in the church. But early adolescence, I did have this growing sense that I was... That I was different, and uh, I, I can remember. I think I might uh, uh, recall this in the book. Uh, friends of mine got hold of a Playboy magazine, which, by the way, was very much less risque than what we see on MTV today. You know, it's. Uh, but we looked back on it, and it was it was terribly exciting, right? And yet, in in all gathering around to look at this Playboy magazine, I realized that their reactions to it were different than mine. And, and almost at the same instant, I realized I'd better not say that, that it would be a danger to our friendships and, and maybe a danger to me physically. And, and that begins what virtually every LGBT person experiences, which is this divergence between what you uh, know you should show to the world and what's really going on with you. And so we live this kind of parallel existence un until... Uh, and if we come out. And so, uh, yeah, from a very early age, I, I knew there was something different, and, and I suspected what it was, and, uh, you know, I started praying immediately that God would take this away from me and uh, relieve me of this terrible thing. In seminary, I got into therapy twice a week uh, for two years to rid myself of this uh, attraction for men. I'd, I'd love to have all that money back right now. <laughs> uh, I'd be a rich man. 
and found myself in a place to have a relationship with a woman, met a wonderful woman, married her. And then 13 years later and two children later, we decided that we were each paying too great a price for this and that the only way we could keep the vow that we had made to one another to honor each other in the name of God was to let each other go. And uh, my former wife remains my dear friend to this day. She was one of the presenters at my consecration. We even went back to church to end our marriage. We took a priest with us to the um, judge's chambers for the final divorce decree, and then went back to his church and in the context of the communion service, asked each other's forgiveness for any ways we might have hurt one another. We um, pledged ourselves to the joint raising of our children. Uh, we returned our wedding rings to each other as the symbol of the vows that we no longer held each other to. And Lord knows we cried a lot and, and then had communion. It was just one of the most remarkably healing moments of, of my whole life. And, and then I was free to um, see if I could make my life in the world with another man. And a year and a half later, I met Mark on a beach in St. Croix, and uh, we're still together 25 years later. You know, it, it's such a beautiful story, the way you tell it now and the way it reads. And one of the things that you were talking about, and I think this is a rare, really interesting point, is the way that um, society shapes uh, gay people or has up until this moment in history, and we're right in the midst of the change, um, is that they've had to live a life of lies. And that's what you point out, and I think what's really interesting is that that's exhausting. It is exhausting, and it's, and it's funny that you mention that. There, there is a great exercise that sometimes we use in training people to be more sensitive to LGBT issues, and that is at the beginning of, a, let's say, a, a day-long workshop, we have every person in the room introduce themselves by name, and then we say, we ask them to identify themselves as a gay man or a lesbian, and then not to do anything the rest of the day to counter that statement. So you've got straight people who, you know, want to talk about their spouse, but now they can't. And uh, everybody's talking about what they did last weekend, but they can't say, because it would give away that they're actually not gay or lesbian, but heterosexual. And that is exactly the learning that they take away. Oh my God, you know, we've done this for seven or eight hours and we're exhausted. Um, how do you do that day in and day out? Just, you know, because you learn to, uh, in a nanosecond, filter out anything that would give you away. And it is absolutely exhausting. And yet LGBT people have been doing that their whole lives. Uh, as you say, until this moment. And, and that's what makes this moment so exciting and transformative. It, it literally uh, transforms someone's life when they come out. And I think uh, this book itself is, is a transformative book. It's uh, a signpost, and I think a very, very important one. As I say, I think that this is a book that you have written, I believe, to a degree intentionally for history. This is 
as I said earlier, the 99 Theses on the wall. And I'd like you to just talk about writing a book that captures this moment and the decisions that are being made uh, in a manner that somebody, uh, say, 400 years from now, when this entire 20th century is going to be seen as the 20th century, or, you know, the, 20, the early 20th, late 20th, early 21st century, as a blink, it'll all be written down as, you know, something equivalent to the Hundred Years' War or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, gosh, I hope it doesn't take a hundred years. But, you know, I, I think humankind tends, when, when some major shift has happened, we tend to forget the history of how it happened. And, and, and that's really too bad. Uh, and, and one of the, one of the um, uh, sort of uh, gripes that I have with the gay community is that, generally speaking, we're very ignorant about our own history and the, the shoulders on, on which we stand. And so I, I do think that there will come a time, and, and actually pretty soon, when we will we, we'll think, how, how did we ever think that way? And what was it like beforehand? And I'm hoping that this book will will show how we how we moved from one way of of being in the world um, and and our treatment of LGBT people, and that to which we moved, which was greater freedom and respect, and and in the in the history of the nation, how we moved from liberty and justice for all having an asterisk after it. Uh, indicating, well, not really all, uh, until we made that a reality, that all actually became all in this remarkable period of time. This book is about gay marriage, and gay marriage is the central tenet of this book. I'd like you to talk about why why gay marriage itself is the focal hub for this book, and you feel the the turning point, the linchpin. (laughs) You know, um, it's, it's really a very conservative argument that I'm making here. I'm not arguing for some uh, alternative to marriage or some crazy, whacked-out notion of marriage. I, you know, I'm, when I, I think the first words in the book are, I believe in marriage. And, and I'm talking about, you know, traditional marriage, faithful, monogamous, lifelong-intentioned uh, relationships between two people. And, and by the way, I, I'll just have to say, you'd think the conservatives would be jumping up and down with joy over this, right? I mean, uh, this is arguing for the very values they say they believe in. And after all, the conservatives have been telling us for God knows how many years that our relationships are shallow, we're promiscuous, and here we, we, we have a solution. We have people begging to join those values, those very values, and those same people want to deny us that. So it's a really pretty conservative argument that I'm making. And, and here's why I think it's crucial. I, I think the LGBT movement is, is not just about laws, and it's not just about uh, you know, getting to file joint tax returns or something of that sort. It's, it's about respect. And you know, maybe the two things that that have almost universal respect in this country are serving in the military and getting married. And and those are the two things we see the gay community demanding. We finally, finally did away with don't ask, don't tell. And and now we're working on gay marriage. It's it's really a very 
uh, emotional signpost of of respect in this country, and and I think the achievement uh, of those two things will will propel us a long way towards a- achieving the of official respect and recognition that I, that I feel like we deserve. It's interesting, kids kids get this right. So if uh, you have two moms or two dads, and you have to explain to your friends what a civil union is. I mean, it's impossible. Nobody knows what a civil union is. And, and it varies from state to state. And, and you certainly don't want to be explaining it, you know, uh, when you're sitting in an emergency room, your partner's bleeding to death in the next room and they won't let you in because they don't understand what rights come with a civil union. But if you tell them you're married, they know exactly what that means. And, and you get right by your spouse's bedside. And the two kids trying to explain their two dads and two moms can say to their friends, oh yeah, my dads are married, my moms are married. And the other kids know exactly what that means. It means they're a family. And uh, civil union just doesn't do it. One of the things I think that I really liked about this book was the way that you dealt with the scripture and you talked about the, the Bible passages that deal with homosexuality and, and how they deal with it. and Or I, supposedly deal so, with supposedly it. Yeah. Deal, well, what's interesting is that um, this all comes down to a matter of context, and it's, it's essentially what the task that we're faced with is one of literary interpretation. That's right. And, and you know, uh, we do that with other, uh, other forms of literature, and somehow more conservative uh, Jews and Christians feel that in order to to talk about context or or even to understand that uh, you know the the Bible is not one book it's a, a library of books as Peter Gomes used to say written over a thousand years from a variety of, of perspectives is somehow to, to uh, treat it with less than reverence and and the fact of the matter is the the literary tools that we have um, at our at our ready um, help us to understand and and to perform this the, this task of determining the context. You know, um, we would never expect the biblical writers to have known that the world was round rather than flat. We, we don't put that expectation on them. And yet the the whole notion of sexual orientation is only about 140 years old. It was at the end of the 19th century that someone first posited the notion that a certain minority of us were affectionately oriented towards people of the same gender. Well, if if that's only about 140 years old, you can't read knowledge about sexual orientation back into an ancient text without doing that text injustice. And so, in one very real sense, homosexuality didn't exist in biblical times. Same-sex behavior did, but it was presumed to be between heterosexual people because everyone was assumed to be heterosexual. So you can't, you, you can't take a, a modern-day concept, and even word, I mean, the word didn't exist back then, and, and presumably the word heterosexual didn't either because it was just sort of included in what it was to be human. Uh, so you can't take something that is is relatively new on the, the human horizon and understanding, plug it back into an ancient text, and assume they were talking about the same things 
that we're talking about. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, I would say those seven verses, and there are only seven verses or passages that seem to relate to this topic, actually don't relate to this topic at all. They're, they're addressing something different than the questions we're asking today. One of the, the key concepts of this book, too, has to do overall with the innate human inclination towards compassion. It's, it's something that's part of all of us, and I think we can't help it. This is, they've discovered the mirror neurons that, that uh, uh, are, make this actually part of our makeup. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the importance of compassion to this work, to religion, and to moving forward, to making this fulcrum turn that we're going through right now uh, something that's a, a thing of joy. You know, I, uh, compassion is at the heart of every religion. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think we're at a moment in, in American history, certainly, where uh, com- compassion for gay and lesbian people is, is on the rise. And I wrote this book really to assist those who who actually in their heart of hearts would like to get to a place of support for LGBT people and for their families and, and, and would, would like to get to um, a, a sort of an advocacy role for, for marriage equality. But they just can't quite get there. And so um, I wrote this book to sort of help get them over the hump, you know. And I also think that there are people who are now convinced that that marriage equality is a good thing, uh, and even not only a good thing, but something that can be justified and, and argued from a religious point of view, but don't quite have the words they, they want uh, when a friend says, yeah, but don't, don't you think this changes the definition of marriage? Don't you really think, you know? And, and so in some sense, this book was um, to give them a script um, because they're, they're going to be asked by another family member or a co-worker or a former classmate, you know, so why, why, good Lord, why are you supportive of this? Or why is your son getting married to another man? And, and, and so I set out to give them an example of the kinds of words that I think could be helpful in, in their explaining their own advocacy. Now, uh, as a writer, you've done a beautiful job in crafting an argument here that's um, terse, it feels conversational, but especially when you're confronting a subject that raises such high passions, what you do is throughout the book, the tone is very genial and intellectual and entertaining. I'd like you to talk about keeping that tone to the prose did this just flow off the tip of your pen? It's it's it is kind of the way I talk. I, I I'm really appreciative of anyone who who wants and is willing to talk to me about this, especially people who disagree with me. I mean, I just have a great sympathy for uh, frankly, how courageous it is. Because, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, of very, very conservative people that to say to even have this conversation is, is uh, surrendering 
right? This is so clear to them, it is so clearly wrong, that to even have the discussion is like uh, surrendering and, and, and saying you've lost. So I, I, I really have a genuine uh, love and respect for people who are willing to wade in and have this discussion. So I, I, I'd like to think that comes through in, in my words, uh, because at the end of the day, it seems to me that what God requires of me, regardless of how negative someone might be about this issue or about me personally, my job is to treat them like the child of God they are. And, and their ill treatment of me does not relieve me of my responsibility to treat them like the child of God they are, just regardless of how they're treating me. And so, um, you know, I, I'm better some days at that than others, but it's always my goal. And, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to think that that came through in the, in the writing of this book. It, it certainly does. And, and given, I talk a little bit about, you know, the reception of this book versus the reception of your coronation when you were first uh, uh, made a bishop. Uh, there were death threats, and I don't know if there still are. They, they've, they've loved to write about the bulletproof vests. Right, uh, right. Um, this book seems to be like maybe, uh, do, you, do you feel like you're putting a target on yourself again? Well, uh, you know, practically every time I open my mouth, I'm, I'm <laughs> repainting the target <laughs> so it doesn't get all, you know, paint peel and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the death threats have certainly lessened, um, with the exception of one really disturbing thing. Um, um, you know, I was invited by President-elect Obama to offer the opening prayer, the invocation, at the opening inaugural event at the Lincoln Memorial, which was just a spectacular honor. And about two weeks later, um, we were at home and we get a call from the Vermont State Police that they had um, almost accidentally arrested a guy who had come through their town in a rage, had shot the windows out of a, an empty parked uh, police cruiser. And when they caught up to him, he had MapQuest maps to our house. He had pictures of me and Mark, and he had scrawled across them, uh, save the church, kill the bishop. And he had a sawed-off shotgun and tons of ammunition. And so they call up and say, uh, we have arrested this guy, and, and we're pretty sure he was on his way to your house to kill you. And, uh, you know, the FBI hasn't been involved in all these death threats because most of them have come from outside of New Hampshire. And, you know, they, they always said to us, you don't have to worry so much about the ones who will write you the note because that's, that's usually their reward is writing the note. But they said, you know, the one you have to really worry about is the guy who will never write a note, will just quietly get in his car and drive to your house and ring your doorbell and blow your head off. That continues, uh, and and interestingly, it's uh, two days from now uh, when he gets out of jail. And they couldn't charge him with anything related to us because he hadn't killed us yet. So um, all they could get him for was transporting an illegal firearm across state lines. So, yeah, I mean, this, this all comes with a, a certain amount of uh, cost, but gosh, it's it's so worth doing. Wow, <laughs> that's that's amazing. Now, uh, a as a writer, 
putting it, putting this together and creating a, a, the written document, uh, how long did this take you to do? Tell, talk a little bit about just the decision to say, you know, I'm going to put this into a book and you know, write it down and show it to some people and come up. I, I love this idea because it, it's a cross between Martin Luther from <laughs> way back when and a 21st century fact that you'd find, you know, uh, for rec.arts.sciencefiction.written <laughs> or something. Well, um, I, you know, I didn't have time to write this book. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the way it started. Desmond Tutu's book person, book agent, Doug Abrams, who lives right in the Bay Area, called me and said, I heard you on NPR talking about gay marriage. It just it just seems so commonsensical and, and accessible. I, I think you've got a book in you. And I said, Doug, thank you. That's very sweet. But I don't have time to write a book. I've got a day job. And, you know, they, they, expect, they expect me to be at work, you know. So um, we actually over a period of months, explored, you know, is there someone else who could write it? Maybe I could, you know, give input or what. Anyway, it all came down to, no, it was going to be me or not at all. And so it took probably about nine or ten months uh, for me to write it. And not that I went away somewhere for a period of time and just sat and wrote. Uh, I, I wrote it sort of piece by piece in between all the other things that a bishop has to do in a day, I get up about 4 o'clock in the morning every morning, and uh, that was always a good time to write. And I also think it was a little bit uh, easier because uh, once I had determined what the questions would be, then you know I wasn't thinking about the whole book. I was thinking about that question and how best to address it. So it seemed as if I could take it in reasonable chunks and... And when I finished one, I, you know, I felt like I'd accomplished something. It wasn't like like writing a novel where I, you know, it, it just wasn't finished until it was completely finished. And so I, I think that um, that worked well for me. When you're going out to, to talk about this book, this must uh, feel really good, I think, to get out there and have to hand completed you know, the answers to these questions and to see the to see culture shift. I mean, since you've been ordained, I mean, things have changed a lot. Like you say, it's astounding. His, historically, this is an eye blink. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think there has ever been any movement uh, along any civil rights lines that has progressed so quickly. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've still got teenagers jumping off bridges and hanging themselves over this issue. So on the one hand, we have made so much progress, but um, that progress has largely been made on the east and west coasts and in major cities. And I get five or six emails a week from some kid in Podunk, Idaho, who who still feels like he's the only person in the world, maybe, who feels this way. He, there's nobody he knows that he can talk to. So, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. And, and the thing, I think, also about the book is it, it tries to take a, sort of a generalist's view of, of this issue. You can read whole books on the legalities or 
uh, on the constitutionality or on the religious thing or whatever. I, I wanted to put all those together because I, I think you never know. First of all, people don't have time usually to read whole books on you know one aspect. And also, you never know quite what is going to, as I say, put people over the hump. You know, And so I, I attempted to sort of blend the social and religious and legal and constitutional things um, so as to make a, a holistic argument for, for why marriage equality, uh, marriage equality's time has come. It's a, it's a remarkable work of synthesis of putting these things together um, and a, a perfect example of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, uh, I, that, was certainly my, that was certainly my hope. It was a little bit daunting to take on all of that at once, but I've always felt like, um, uh, I've never felt like a scholar. Uh, I've always felt like an apologist. That is to say the classic use of that word. Not, not somebody who says, I'm sorry, but someone who, who takes something and explains it in a way that, that helps the listener understand. And so I, I sort of went about this as an apologist to, to try to make very sensible and reasonable arguments that were persuasive. And also uh, engaging to read. I think one thing that's interesting is that um, for all the talk we hear about this stuff, uh, and especially on TV and, and on the radio, and we hear all that stuff, I think that it's one thing to hear all that talk, and it doesn't tend to change your mind. It tends to inflame you. Uh, I think it tends to sear you back into the whatever corner you might be in one way or the other. Whereas when you read a book, the act of reading itself immerses you in our, when we read that book, we hear your voice, we're with there in your mind. And I think that that makes a huge difference in the way we're able to bring in this, the, the points you make, because we make them as we read them. We're forced to. You know, and the, the thing, uh, the image I have in my mind is you've got some gay young adult, let's say, whose Aunt Tilly just can't get this. She just can't get this. And you can send her this book, and in the quiet of her own room, nobody else has to know she's reading it, Nobody has to know that she's struggling with it. And privately, she can, uh, what, have a conversation with me in reading my words in this book. And, and I, you know, my hope is that this will change minds and hearts. Uh, and that, uh, that that's something that a book still does, that, you know, some sort of group experience or even a, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation doesn't always do it. Um, this is something that can be unthreatening and something that people can read at their own pace, think about it, go back, read again. And, and, and I, really, I really think hearts can be changed. Intellectual yeast. Right. I hope so. <laughs> I've been speaking with Gene Robinson. His new book is God Believes in Love, Straight Talk About Gay Marriage. Thank you for joining me, Bishop. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.